You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning. For anybody who doesn't know me, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Red Tree Church. Um, as you guys heard, the Tunnels had their baby, so you guys get to have a little string of the rest of us for a couple weeks. So um, it's actually like, it's really cool that we have a church that is okay with other people getting up here. You guys are awesome about that. But it's really nerve-wracking to be up here and to know that you guys are used to Sam and how amazing he is. And Craig, I mean, last week was incredible. And so it's kind of nerve-wracking to be up here and follow those guys. But I'm excited. I'm excited about what God has for us this morning. Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, we're going to be continuing where Craig left off. We're going to be in chapter 2. So let me just kind of give some context if you weren't here. Um, Habakkuk is a extremely interesting book. By the way, the name is extremely difficult to pronounce, so if I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm sorry, but you probably don't know the difference anyway, so. <laughs> um, this book is unusual because it's not, it's not like a lot of the other prophet books in the Bible. Um, it's not a recording of a prophet speaking the words of God to the people. He's, he's not giving a prophecy to the people. It's instead a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is set during a time period when God's people have split. The kingdom of God split into two different kingdoms, into Israel and Judah, and they have been under attack for a long time, and the kingdom of Israel has pretty much gone away at this point. The Assyrians came in and took over, and um, they conquered Israel. They also have kind of held sway over Judah, and um, they are kind of in control at this point. Judah itself has been under the reign of multiple evil kings for years and years, and the people are deeply in sin. They've pretty much turned away from their covenant to God and the way that they follow or, you know, commanded to follow God. And they are fully in sin. They are worshiping other gods. They are um, sacrificing to other gods. They are committing all kinds of things that are fairly normal for the other nations around them and for the influences that they have, but are not the commands of God, the things that they're supposed to be doing. There had been one king in their recent history, Josiah, who had returned them to the uh, to following the word of God, to holding uh, the word of God sacred, and to following what they were supposed to follow. And uh, had he had restored the temple and the worship of God in the temple. Uh, But after his death, the people turned back to their sin, and uh, they were back in that. So this is the time period that Habakkuk lives in. And we see that he very, um, 
very clearly sees the evil and the sin that his own people are committing, as well as the evil and the sin that the rest of the world has to offer. And Habakkuk is very interesting because he's not okay with it. He's not okay just sitting back under the weight of all the evil that he sees in the world and saying, woe is me. Instead, he boldly confronts God and asks him a series of questions. So this book is really the dialogue between this prophet and between God as they go back and forth, and Habakkuk asks God questions, difficult questions, and God answers. So this morning, we get to um, look at God's answer to Habakkuk's questions. Craig handled the questions last week, and this morning we get to look at the questions. We see that God is bringing, uh, he is bringing these answers to Habakkuk, and the answer that he saw, that we saw last week, wasn't really what Habakkuk wanted to hear. His first question was, God, why do you allow so much evil? Why are you allowing evil to take over your people? Why are you allowing your people to be in sin? And we see that God's answer is, well, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to come and punish my people, which Habakkuk is not really okay with. He says, what are you talking about? Why would you bring up a greater evil because the Babylonians were extremely evil and wicked and sinful, why would you raise up this greater evil to punish a lesser evil? And that's where we get to pick up this morning. Habakkuk's second question, how can a pure and good God use a more evil nation like the Babylonians to punish a less evil nation like Judah? It's really a pretty heavy topic. Um... Habakkuk's question is one that really is still relevant for us today. How can a loving God allow evil to go unpunished? How can a loving God allow evil to exist? We all know lots of evil, terrible things that are happening in the world, and I think most of us have either asked that question or been confronted with that question before. Habakkuk thought the question was important enough to confront God about it, And it's interesting because he didn't just ask God the question. He asks God the question and then boldly waits for the answer. We see in the first verse of chapter 2 that Habakkuk tells God he's going to take a stand on the walls of the city and wait for the answer. He says he's going to place himself in the watchtower and wait for God to answer. We don't have any idea how much time passes between that statement and the actual answer that comes, but we see that God does answer. So let's go ahead and look at God's answer. We're going to be in, starting in verse 2. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the word of the Lord. Let me pray and then we will jump into it. Lord God, I thank you that you answer us. God, I thank you that you have provided an answer this morning and we can look at it, we can study it, we can examine what you have to say, and we can know that it is truth. We can rest in the truth of your answer. Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning you would speak through me, that you would communicate your words to your people here. God, I thank you so much that you love us and that you are a God who speaks. God, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts this morning to hear what you have to say. You would convict us and you would draw us to your heart. Amen. So we have this very heavy answer from God. Habakkuk asks his question and God answers, and it is an intense answer. There's a couple of things right off the bat that I want us to just lay out because God does, and um, I think it's important for our understanding of this passage. First off, we see that God makes it extremely clear to to Habakkuk that what he is saying is very important. 
Habakkuk has had his say. He's dramatically standing on the watchtower, waiting for God's answer. And we see here that God gives the answer, and it's important. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. We see that he says, you need to write this down. He doesn't just trust to Habakkuk's memory or trust to the uh, storytelling ability of Habakkuk to recount God's answer to the people. He says, you need to write this down because this is important. You need to write it down so that all the people can have it, so that people generations from now can have it, which should tell us that we should pay attention to what God is saying here because it's important even for us. He begins his answer by providing a comparison between an evil person and a righteous person. We know that God is talking about the Babylonians here because that was Habakkuk's question. And so we know that the person that he's referring to here is the Babylonian king at the time. We see that um, these attributes that he gives to the evil person are um, pretty intense king is proud, puffed up, arrogant, greedy, a murderer, and he takes everyone and everything for himself. This is the MO of the Babylonians. They are conquering the world. They are taking everything that they can. They are murdering people. They are building their civilization on death and destruction, which makes sense why Habakkuk would be so confused that God would use this evil nation to enact his will. We see that that is contrasted with the righteous person who gets one sentence. The righteous lives by his faith. We're going to return to that later. Uh, I want to focus on the rest of the passage for a little bit. But we see that God identifies the Babylonian king's evil, and then he begins to pronounce his judgment against the king. But he does it in an extremely interesting way that I think is really important for our understanding of this. Look at verses 5 and 6. Starting kind of at the end of 5, he says, He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, We see that God identifies the victims of the king's evil actions here, and he speaks for those victims. God places himself with the victims of the evil that has been caused in the world. And God gathers all of those victims together and speaks for them. He doesn't just sit up on high and pronounce his judgment on the Babylonians, but he places himself squarely in the middle of the victims and speaks for them, which is, I think, incredibly important. He speaks in the voice of the victims as he pronounces these woes on the Babylonian king. Now, the woes that God lays out here, there are five. If you're familiar with the um, New Testament scriptures, you might be familiar with a similar scene where Jesus pronounces woes on the leaders of the Jewish, um, the leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes. And this uh, is a pretty specific type of practice that um, the person in authority would pronounce a woe. It's kind of a, like a poetic way to pronounce 
the evil that's being done and the judgment that is promised. And it is a promise. It's more than just this is what is going to happen if you continue. It's a very definite, this is what you are doing and this is the punishment that is being put on you. It's a promise. We saw in Jesus' time that the uh, woes that he put on the Pharisees and the scribes were very much the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and caused them to want to kill him. Um, and here we see God in the voice of the victims pronouncing these five woes upon the Babylonians. So let's go ahead and read through these and look, look at them real quick. So first we see that God in the voice of the victims pronounces a woe upon the Babylonians for taking and hoarding up things that are not theirs. The Babylonians were sweeping across the world, conquering and taking the wealth of the nations and bringing it to themselves hoarding it up for themselves. And we see God says that those who hoard up what is not theirs will have it all stripped from them eventually. Second, we see a woe on them for relying on their ill-gotten wealth and trusting in it as their security. God says the only security in building up stolen wealth for ourselves is a false security. He says those that rely on their man-made stolen security, that security will cry out against them and betray them, and they will forfeit their lives. Third, we see a woe upon those who build their civilization on the pain and suffering of others. The Babylonians were famous for the violence and the pain that they caused to people. That was one of the ways that they subjugated the people that they conquered and made sure that they stayed conquered was they promised extreme amounts of violence and they caused that violence to those people. We see that the Babylonians built their civilization on the pain and the suffering of other people. Babylon was grand. It was amazing. It was supposed to be one of the wonders of the world and it was built on the pain and suffering of the people around them. God says that anything grand they think they have built will be as fire, as nothing, when the knowledge of his glory fills the earth. Fourth, we see a woe upon those who maliciously do violence on others to cause them shame and brokenness. The Babylonians were not just killing, they were doing a lot of other things. They were raping, they were causing as much shame and uh, pain on the people that they could in order to keep them subjugated. God says that he has prepared a cup of wrath for those who revel in this kind of violence, and they will drink it. Fifth, we see a woe upon idolaters. The Babylonians were idolaters, worshiping the god Marduk, among others, and God speaks very harshly about idols. We know this, we've seen it in the rest of Scripture, that uh, God does not like idols. He does not like people creating man-made things and placing them in his place and worshiping them as gods. We've seen that throughout the history of God's people, all the way back to when they were freed from slavery, that they turned to a golden calf uh, and created this idol. This has been a thing that he has uh, fought with his people for a long time. We see that God does not have kind words to say about idolaters. 
And then the woes finish with this breathtaking image. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So we have these woes that God pronounces on the Babylonians. Habakkuk speaks boldly to God, asking him how he could use a greater evil to judge a lesser evil, how he could condone evil being done in the world. And God speaks boldly back, detailing the sin he sees in that greater evil and the terrible judgment that will befall all of those evil sinners. Part of the answer to that question God speaks here and says, I will judge the evil. I will punish it. God very clearly says here that he will not tolerate evil forever. He will punish it. Scripture gives us a very clear image of the final destruction of Babylon at the end of the book in Revelation 18. Let me just read this to you. It says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is serious stuff. God gives his answer to Habakkuk and says he will judge evil. He does not abide evil. He's sitting on the throne of heaven and he will judge the evil. But not just that. He stands in the place of the victims. God isn't just the righteous judge. He is also the great advocate for the innocent and the victims. Which is a a little different way to look at this a little uh it it makes it a little different that god is not just up there pouring down his wrath and judgment on sin and evil but he stands in the place of the victims so what are we going to do with this this is harsh this is a tough passage to look at we see that habakkuk is astounded that god would use evil to do his will to punish a lesser evil. And then we see that God says, well, I'm going to punish the greater evil as well. And the punishment is harsh. This is tough stuff to read. I think especially because we know the rest of scripture. We know that we are evil. We are sinners. This is a specific 
passage of, you know, judgment on the Babylonians. But can we really look at our culture, our uh, world right now, and not see these same sins? I think we can. I think we can look at our culture and see a lot of these same things. People hoarding up wealth for themselves. People causing violence on others in order to have gain for themselves. People building things upon the pain of others. People causing extreme shame and uh, hatred to others. People being idolaters. I think those are things that we can see in our culture, in our, even in our own selves, in our own lives sometimes. So how do we, what do we do with this? How do we take this? We probably should be a little afraid. I think that there's some good in being a little afraid and seeing our sin and recognizing that there is a God who will judge and punish sin and evil. We need to be real with ourselves. I could go into passage after passage of Scripture showing that our sin is no better than theirs. Scripture is pretty clear that all sin is evil, all sin is against God, and all sin will be punished. I think we should be a little afraid knowing that there is coming a time because God has promised it when he will stand up and judge evil and judge sinners. But maybe that isn't how we're feeling. Maybe we instead kind of place ourselves in the, in the shoes of the victims because I think we all have been victims of someone else's evil. Maybe instead of feeling some fear, maybe instead we feel this question of how long will you wait, God? How long will you delay? Why do you wait? Why do you let evil continue? The beauty of this passage is God answers both questions here very simply. And it's that single phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith. I want to look at this for a little bit. God is not content to merely sit back and judge evil. He didn't create the world and everything in it to sit back and destroy it all because of the evil that is running rampant in it. If he had wanted that, he could have just wiped everything away when he destroyed the world underwater with Noah's flood. But he didn't. He instead saved a remnant, and he has continued to build something, to save a remnant, to build a kingdom. And that's what we see throughout history, throughout the scripture, that God is not just a righteous judge. He's a merciful savior. He's building something. He is saving people out of their sin and building up something. The Old Testament and the stories of the prophets are a constant picture of God's people sinning against him, his justice being poured out on them, but then his mercy also being poured out on them and saving them again. He does that for a purpose. And that purpose is to build a kingdom of righteous saints. He does it through that line he gave, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's the gospel message. We see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 reference that phrase here when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the gospel message, that God bestows his righteousness on all who have faith, all who believe in his words. That's why he was so clear with Habakkuk to write the vision down. He wanted Habakkuk to read it, to trust it. He wanted his people to trust his words. That's the point of scripture, that he has given us the truth and we need to trust it. We need to have faith. By believing, by having faith, Habakkuk and others could find righteousness through God. A little later in Romans, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has this to say. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the answer to the question. God delays. He holds back his wrath and judgment. He forbears and has patience out of kindness to lead us to repentance. We are all sinners deserving of God's wrath, but he has kindness to lead us to repentance to gift us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He brings us into this kingdom of righteous saints that he's building. But those who don't find that repentance, those who don't repent, are building up wrath for themselves. He will come back. We need to hear that, church. He won't delay forever. The message of the gospel is amazing, and it is hope But it is also a message that he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. We're going to start midway through verse 7. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will return. He will judge. He will punish evil. He will gather together his saints into his kingdom. All will glorify him. And he gives us some commands here. 
It says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. God has called us to something. We are called to share the message of the gospel, to make disciples, to go and be the righteousness of God to the world around us and show them the love of Christ. We need to take that seriously because he is coming back and he's going to judge. If we have received the hope and the message of the gospel, that is amazing. That's incredible. And we should want others to receive it as well because we, our sin isn't any better than theirs. Our sin is the same. We deserve judgment just as much as the Babylonians did. We deserve wrath, but he has taken that upon himself. We won't receive it. We will receive the righteousness of Jesus instead, and we should want others to participate in that. That's the calling that God wants us to have. That's the calling that he has put on us. And that's what I pray for us, church, that we would have this calling It's what the Apostle Paul says here, that he prays for us, for that church and for us, that our God may make us worthy of his calling. Man can come up. Um, This is how God answers the question of how could a loving God allow evil things to happen. The answer is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to share that message with the world with the sinners, so that they may have a chance to believe and find the kindness of God's salvation and righteousness, just like we have. We're going to take some time to respond to the Word of God this morning. God's truth can change us. It has changed us. The gospel has changed us. And I would encourage each one of us to spend time reflecting on what God has for you in this this morning. It's, it's heavy, it's tough, but he is kind, he is merciful, and he has something for us in it. So spend some time in response, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in reflection. We'll have prayer counselors, I think Mike and Kim uh, will be on kind of either side of the room if you need someone to pray for you, or if you want to uh, find one of the elders, we would be happy to pray with you as well. Um, just spend some time in prayer. After a few minutes, uh, we will gather back together and sing, but spend some time in reflection. Let the Holy Spirit implant this in your heart. Let him speak to you and um, just respond to him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.